One of my all-time favorite books is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And in that story, you seem to have two characters pitted against one another. On one side, you have the White Witch, and her adversary is the Lion Aslan. And it seems throughout much of the book that they're going head-to-head. The witch seems to think that she's got the upper hand. She's been able to this point to demonstrate enough uh, knowledge of the deep things to, uh, to have made it always winter and never Christmas. She's even able to, uh, it seems to her, to capture her enemy, to bind him, and to kill him. But it's after Aslan rises from the grave that we realize that she has no power. And when asked about it, he explains that she thinks that she knows the deep things. But really, there are deeper things still. She knew enough to serve herself, to to wrest control for a moment over that small kingdom, but not enough to truly rule as Narnia needed her to rule. She's dethroned. She's thrown down by the all-powerful enemy in our story. Well, we should see similarities in our letter today. In our letter, there's another evil temptress who is attempting to make a kingdom for herself in this little town, in this little church, and she's doing it by evil means. But the true ruler of nations is coming, and he's going to throw her down and take his rightful place at the throne. If you would, turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to continue our series through the letters to the churches that begin the revelation of Christ at the end of the New Testament. We'll be looking today at the letter to Thyatira. Now, Thyatira is one of the seven churches that's listed as one of the recipients of this book of Revelation. The seven churches were in seven cities across the Roman province of Asia. So Jesus started his revelation with a letter to each church. So he started in the southwest corner of the province with Ephesus, and he started to work his way north up the coast uh, through uh, Smyrna and on to Pergamum, and now we're over to the tiny little hamlet of Thyatira. Thyatira started out as a, as a military outpost. It's out in the middle of a valley. Um, it never gained much significance as a city, as an influencer, Instead, it's just merely a, a manufacturing hub. There's part of, the, part of the province, and it's filled with trade guilds. That'll be important as we, as we read our text together today. But despite its size and its insignificance, this church has received the longest of these seven letters. And this letter is uh, poetically placed right in the middle of the seven. It's meant to draw our attention to its content This morning, let us hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Revelation 2, starting in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, 
who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers And who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." I think if we're trying to understand the, the main idea, that the point of this letter, and to boil it down uh, simply, it would be that Christ has an expectation for a maturing church. And for a maturing church, they must do the hard work to exclude the unrepentant so as to exalt the Son of God and exhort his people to good works. So they exclude the unrepentant to exalt the Son of God and exhort one another. So how I want us to do this today is I want us to look at these two combatants that have come into the ring here in Thyatira. I want us to understand who they are and what they have done and how it will end for them. And then I want us to try to understand what does that mean for us and how do we respond. So first, I want us to look at Jezebel, understand who she is, what she's done, and how it will end for her. And then we'll look at our response. And then we'll look at Jesus. And we'll see who he is and what he has done and how we are to respond. So Jezebel, well, Jezebel seduces, scorns, and then sickens. She seduces, scorns, and then sickens, while Jesus searches strikes, and then shares. So we'll unpack those as we go. So let's look here at first at Jezebel. Now, the, the letter to Thyatira opens with a commendation. In contrast to what we saw over in Ephesus, the, those in Thyatira, their, their latter works, they exceed their first. They, they've grown in love, faith, service, But while they have patiently endured persecution, they have improperly tolerated the false prophetess Jezebel. Look at verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So who is this Jezebel? Well, this is probably a reference to an actual person in Thyatira. And this person is is claiming to be a Christian. 
She's calling herself a prophetess, but her works reveal that she's neither of those two things. She worships false idols, and she leads others to follow her into her sin. So although her actual name is probably not Jezebel, um, no one wants to pick that one up, right? I looked it up. It's not been in the top 1,000 names for girls in the last 125 years, as far back as records go. Because it doesn't take much discovery in the Old Testament to realize you want to have nothing to do with the name Jezebel. But Christ is expecting his New Testament churches to be good Old Testament readers. And he's drawing them back to this character in the Old Testament, this despicable and horrible character in the Old Testament. So there really was a woman named Jezebel. And she was the daughter of Ithbal, king, who was king of an idolatrous nation near Israel. And Jezebel married King Ahab, king of Israel. And so, despite not being an Israelite, despite not being a convert, a follower of Yahweh, she becomes the queen of Israel. And with her come all of her idols. So in 1 Kings 18, we begin to see what all that entails. And she brings evil and corruption and murder into the kingdom of Israel. In 1 Kings 18, she, she cuts off the, the prophets from support from the king, and then she kills the prophets of Yahweh. And then in contrast, she brings in her own prophets, 400 prophets of Asherah and 450 prophets of Baal, and she supports them from her own table. And then when the true prophet Elijah wipes them out uh, at Mount Carmel, she then threatens to wipe him out. It's not an idle threat. And after authoring the deaths of countless others, Jezebel eventually dies a gruesome death at the hands of her own servants. 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 25 sums it up well when it says, There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. Whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. Because therein lies that first terrible characteristic of Jezebel. It's not just that Jezebel sins, and she does that horrifically. It's that she seduces others to join her in her sin. Jezebel is both malicious and malignant. She's a cancer that's metastasizing its way through the body of the church at Thyatira. And she's not content to just sit in her own little corner and sin in the dark. She parades her sin out in front of everybody. And she urges them to, to toss aside their inhibitions and to join her in her sin. She's the personification of the woman of folly in Proverbs chapter 9. In, in Proverbs, particularly in the, in the first half, you see this contrast between uh, the, the woman of wisdom, the lady wisdom, and, and the woman of folly. And the woman of folly is often represented uh, in sexual sin as a, as a prostitute. In, in Proverbs 9, starting in verse 13, it says, The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat 
on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by who are, are going straight on their way, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there and that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. It's why so many commentators will jump from Revelation chapter 2 to Revelation chapter 17 and 18 and connect the woman Jezebel to the Babylonian prostitute that we find in 17 and 18. Because it seems that the, the great prostitute in 17 and 18 is doing on a macro scale to the whole world what Jezebel is doing on the micro scale to this one little church. She's enticing others with influence and, and freedoms and pleasure and financial gain. So remember in the city of Thyatira, it's filled with these trade guilds. Um, and each one of those would have had a, a patron idol. So it would have been nearly impossible to do business in this city without being in your trade guild. And it would have been really difficult to be in your trade guild without participating in these pagan worships, these pagan feasts to their patron gods. So which, those often involved this, this sexual morality we see described here and, and food sacrificed to idols. We talked about that last week. So you can imagine the pressure this would have presented to the Christians there. Many in that church had held out. We saw that in verse 19. They've had patient endurance, but others... Others have succumbed to this temptation. And, and you can hear how the lie might have started just real small, right? Like, oh, you're worried about those guild feasts? I, I, I wouldn't worry about that. I mean, the, the rumors about them are probably worse than they actually are. It's not, it's not a big deal, you know? And, and you don't want to lose your job, do you? I mean, you don't want to get behind on those payments, do you? I mean, how is, how is one little feast going to matter? Is it going to be that big of a deal? And, and no one's going to know. No one, no one has to know. I mean, I, I've, I've been to lots of those kinds of feasts. And, and no one around here in this church has really cared. It's not that big of a deal. Actually, I, I don't even think God cares. Actually, I think God thinks it's, it's fine because my business has been blessed. It's been a lot of fun. You really ought to join me at the next one. See how it, it, it worms its way into our hearts? It, it connects with our fears. It pulls us into what we think is a, a short-term maybe solution or a, a short-term diversion, when in reality it only leads to death. And it's important that we connect that, that while sexual sin and and false idol worship are, are named here specifically, they, throughout Scripture, they both often stand in as metaphors uh, just for all kinds of sinful lusts. So like when you go to James chapter 4, in chapter 4, verse 4, he calls his readers an adulterous people. He, he accuses them of adultery. And, and, but what he's talking about there is adultery against God that they have abandoned their love of God and their love of his law and his goodness. And so 
they've let the, the passions of their anger and their greed and their covetousness override the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. So James decries them, and he says, Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And that's exactly what Jezebel has done. She has made herself a friend to this world and pulled others into that social circle. And by doing, she has made them all enemies of God. Does that describe you this morning? Has your friendship with the things of this world placed you at odds with the creator of this world? Do you care more about pleasure than purity? About money than the mercy of God? About happiness than holiness? Has your belly become your God? Is that who you serve? Just the the lust and the passions and the hungers within you? And then are, are you bringing others into that sin? Maybe you're hoping to to increase your enjoyment in it, or you're hoping to decrease your guilt about it, if you can just add others to the bandwagon. Even now, as, as the Word and the Spirit works on your heart, are you resistant to turn away from your sin? Are you drawn to the light as you should be willing to confess and expose your sin? Or are you thinking about diving right back into it and hoping that maybe this time you can just hide it better, hide it better from yourself and from others and from the Lord. Because that's what Jezebel does. That's what Jezebel does. She, she seduces others into her sin, but she's also marked by the fact that she scorns calls to repent. She refuses to repent. And I pray that doesn't mark us. Look at verse 21. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Repentance is the wholehearted turning from your sin and toward Christ. On the the grandest scale, we see this in salvation. It's how we are saved. We repent of our sin and we believe in Jesus Christ to save us. But, Christian, that's not the only time we repent. That, that dual action of repenting and believing, of, of turning and trusting, that becomes the pattern of the life of the believer. And that, not that we are, are, are lost and need to be saved again and again, uh, but that the cadence of sanctification in our life, of becoming more and more like Christ, well, that mirrors that one-time response of faith in salvation. Repent and believe. Turn from your sin and turn to your Savior. That's what the people of God do. And so when Jezebel refuses to repent, she is declaring boldly, I am not among the people of God. I may live among the people of God. I may interact with the people of God. I may influence the people of God but I am not one of the people of God. She's been given her chances to repent, whether through the word preached or prayed or sung or taught or enacted by the church. She could have turned away from her sin. 
There have been opportunity after opportunity. She could have turned away from, from pulling others into her sin. And instead, she has flatly refused. And she, she no longer carries those important telltale signs of who is a sheep and who is not. She's proven herself to be a wolf. And when the shepherd comes, there will be consequences for the wolves among the sheep. Dire consequences. Last week we saw in Pergamum that Jesus told that, that church, I will come to you soon and war against them, the, the, the unfaithful ones within your midst. I will war against them with the sword of my mouth. And the consequences in Thyatira are, are no less grave. Look at verse 22. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of their works, and I will strike her children dead. You see, what happens here with Jezebel is that she seduces, and then she scorns, and then she sickens. This is her end. She sickens. As a consequence of her unrepentance, Christ throws her onto a sickbed. Now, it might be that the, the person that's being referred to here as Jezebel, that, that that person really did become sick. So Paul uh, told the church in Corinth that because of their sin, because of their mishandling of the Lord's Supper, because of their selfishness and pride, that some of them have become weak and ill. Some have even died. So on, on the grandest scale, all sickness is a result of sin. It, it was only after Adam sinned in the garden that sickness and death began to ravage our world. And, and when we look forward to the day when Christ will return and he will make all things new and he will remove sin and he will remove sickness and he will remove death for the rest of eternity. But it's important to note that that not all sickness is the direct result of specific sins. So not every uh, sniffle has a sin as, as its cause. And it's, it's actually, it's heresy to say that sickness is only due to the lack of faith or that faith alone is the means by which God cures our earthly ills. All sickness is meant to be sanctifying. It is a tool in the hand of God to bring us to a point of dependence on him, to trust in his strength, to trust in his grace, to trust in his hand to deliver through whatever means he would choose necessary. But I, I think more than we need to see like physical consequences here in our passage, we need to recognize that this pattern in verses 22 and 23 represents a spiritual reality. So again, James writes in James 1, 14 and 15, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. This is the, the spiritual pattern in our life. It starts small. You, you feel these, these desires, these passions, and you allow them to overwhelm you. You choose them over the things of the Lord. And in so choosing, you conceive sin. 
You can see that desire in you, and it gives birth to sin. And sin, as it grows and grows and grows in your life and in our church, it only leads to death. The wages, the results, the outcomes of our sin is death. That's why Solomon writes in Proverbs seven twenty seven that her house, again, the adulterous woman, the seducer, it only goes down to death. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. These are the consequences of sin. And what I think is happening here, as you see uh, Jezebel and those who have uh, committed adultery with her and their children, the products of you, you see this escalation. Now, I don't think this is uh, compartmentalized, that this one over here gets this result, but this one over here gets this one, and this one over here gets that one. I think it's meant to see the escalation of sin and the escalation of the consequences of sin for each of us. This is Jezebel. All she does is seduce and scorn, and in the end, she sickens and dies, and all those who follow her share her fate. So what do we do? Knowing what we know about Jezebel, what are we to do? Well, I think the response for us is that we are to keep Christ's church. We're to keep Christ's church. In particular, we're to clean Christ's church. Or to keep it clean. So I think we do that first by, by running from sin. Avoid sin. Run from sin. Where you see it uh, standing in front of you, that door open. Do you remember the, the man in the Proverbs, the simple man? He's going on a straight way. And yet he hears the call of the woman of folly and he turns aside. Don't turn towards sin. Run from sin. The instructions in Proverbs 5, starting in verse 7, say, And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength, and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, listen to this, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed, and you say, how I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. This is the path that lays before you if you choose not to run from sin. And so repent, repent, turn from sin. No longer presume on the kindness of our God and his goodness and his patience and his forbearance. Don't you know that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance? It's meant to lead you to repentance. And I know this is grievous. I know this hurts to hear. I know this will require work. I know this will be hard. I know that relationships will change and that grief and shame may come but I know that that grieving can turn into repenting. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. That's 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. 
For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. It's no joy of mine to stand here this week and last and to bring you heavy messages that call you to repent. It's no joy of mine to lay this grief on you, but our prayer is that this grief would call you to repent. Run from sin. Turn and trust in Christ. And as a church, we have to be willing and able to do the hard work of removing the unrepentant, of excluding the unrepentant from among us. Last week, we we talked about this briefly, about how God calls us to to call our brothers and sisters to repent. We we saw this in, in Galatians 6. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And, and we, we looked at how that, that plays out in Matthew 18 and how it ends with, and if he refuses to listen to them, to all those opportunities, one after the other after the other, calls to repent. If they still, like Jezebel, refuse to repent, verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That final step of removing them from the church seems so countercultural, so unloving. When in reality, um, to do so lovingly has, well, it's always been countercultural in every day and in every age. And, and our, because our, our sinful desire to, to serve ourselves. Um, in conflict, it, it, it can lead us to be unlovingly uh, aggressive and punitive towards others. Or, or other times, in our fear of making that first mistake, we set up camp in the ditch on the other side of the road and we tolerate the sin within our body. This is what Jesus has against the church in Thyatira, and I pray it is not what he would hold against the church here at UBC. We cannot ignore sin, cannot tolerate sin in ourselves and in others. And we have to realize that even this final act of excluding them from the church is an act of love that is good for the individual, it's good for the church, and it's good for the gospel. It's good for that individual because we are removing, we're making every attempt to remove the blinders from their eyes that they have deceived themselves into thinking that they are fine with God. This is our last and desperate attempt to tell them, we don't think you are. Repent and turn to Christ. This is the most loving thing we can do for your soul. And it's good not only for the individual, but it's good for the church. It's good for the church. It slows that gangrene from spreading across the congregation. And it reminds each of us to repent of our own sins. As we see their folly, we walk away from our own. And then it's good for the reputation of the gospel. It's good for the reputation of the gospel. Because serious, demonstrable, unrepentant sin tells countless lies about the gospel. It tells us lies that, that that sin can't be overcome, that it doesn't need to be overcome, 
that the gospel can't change lives, that God doesn't wash us clean and sanctify us. Those are lies about the gospel. And the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we proclaim to the world is that God can and will rescue those who repent and believe in him. And that changes them. And they no longer carry in them a heart of stone, but instead beat with a heart of flesh that pumps with the blood of Christ. That is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we, are, when we tolerate sin in ourselves and in others, we spread lies about that good news. We need to cherish this good news and spread this good news. And at the center of this good news is Jesus. Is Jesus. And here we see Jesus. He is the second figure. He is the real figure. He's the real ruler Whatever Jezebel may think that she has in influence, whatever she thinks she has in deep knowledge, it is nothing compared to the real ruler when he steps in. Let's look at Jesus, who he is, what he does, and how it will end for him. Look at verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So at the beginning of each one of these letters, Christ gives a a description of himself. So he doesn't just say, hey church in Thyatira, it's me, Jesus. How are things going? It's not simple. It's gorgeous. It's complex. And it's beautiful. Here we have the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. This is one of the most clear and specific um, uh, Davidic titles, titles that, 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 cl- that Christ is claiming as the one who was promised long ago. And this is also one of the most clear and specific titles of Christ's divinity. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. He stands in authority as the one who is the heir to the throne of God. In him all things were created, and in him all things hold together. And he's not flimsy. He has bronze feet, which in Thyatira would have been one of their, one of their uh, manufacturing hubs. And they would have known what it meant for him to have burnished bronze feet. It wasn't going to fall apart. These are no clay feet like we find in Daniel. These are, these are sturdy, burnished bronze, gorgeous feet that will crush their enemies. And he has fiery eyes. He has fiery eyes. This is how Jesus describes himself in, in Revelation chapter 1 and again at the end of the book. He has fiery eyes. I don't think we're, we're merely meant here to, to think of him as having uh, like anger in his eyes, like again, a, a cartoonish image. Instead, think of it as, as the one whose eyes can see through the dark because they provide their own light, because he is the light. He is the light. And this should make us think uh, of, of the messenger in Daniel chapter 10, who comes uh, to deliver a message to Daniel. This is this, this imposing figure And as good Old Testament readers, we would quickly go to that place and see that message and see that this is a great and matchless God. 
And what does he do with those fiery eyes? Well, he searches first. He searches. That's why we read in Jeremiah 17, uh, verses 9 and 10, as our call to worship this morning, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. He sees into every corner. Nothing is hidden from him. Nothing in your heart, nothing in your mind, nothing in our church, nothing in our culture. Remember last week, what a beautiful and sweet promise it was to Pergamum that they were told that I know where you dwell. I know the circumstances you're in. They're not hidden from me. Here he says, I know your works. I know what you're doing. I know what's in your heart, what's in your mind. He knows. And, and he intends for all the churches to know, for all the churches to know that he is the one who searches minds and hearts and that he will give according to your works. You see that language there in the middle of our passage, I will give to each of you according to your works. This gift language is striking because throughout, we've seen it in the other letters, He's always giving something. At the end of the letter, he's giving things to those who conquer. He grants them things. He gives them provision. He gave them a white stone last week. This week, he will give them the morning star. But here in particular, he's contrasted with the, with the gifts that, that Jezebel wants to try to give. And he says, I will give you good, but I will also give you ill. I will give you according to your works. He is the just judge. So not only can Jesus see all things, but he has the authority to do something about all things. He not only searches, but he strikes. He strikes. He is the sovereign judge who strikes those who have run from him. Verse 23, and I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches minds and hearts, because I give to each according to your works. He is that perfect, just judge. And that's who we want in our Savior. We don't want one who, like the fire tyrants, just tolerates sin forever, who allows it to go on, who ignores it, who's powerless to do anything about it. No, we want a good and gracious and sovereign Savior who will stand in and say, this is wrong. And the punishment for this is death. And I have the power. I hold the keys. I have the ability to deliver just such a message and just such a condemnation, just such a result. He is that just judge. And as you sit here today and you think about your own sin, and you think about how you have tinkered with it, and how you have have you've tugged others into your sin, know that there's one who knows exactly what we're talking about, who knows even better than you do the depths of your sin. And while you think you know the deep things, the so-called deep things, those are only deep things of Satan. Actually, the message is far worse than you could imagine. 
the depth of your sin goes far further. And the, the, the righteous punishment for your sin is far more than just being thrown into a sickbed, than feeling the tribulation, than even physical death. The, the righteous, eternal punishment for our sin is everlasting separation and punishment in hell. Separation from a good and holy God. This is the weightiness of our sin, and he is willing and able to bring this to bear. But he also is a merciful God. And even as he has the ability in his right timing to bring the strikes that we deserve, he has borne our stripes. He has taken it on himself. When we deserve to be spit on and struck in the face, he took that on himself. And it's in that mercy, in that grace, that he offers us this opportunity to repent. Look, look in the middle of verses 22 and 23, where he is telling them of the consequences of their sin. He says, And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, unless. Do you hear the mercy? Do you hear the grace pour out for us right here in the middle of the text? Unless they repent of her works. They don't follow her works anymore. They're going to keep to his works. This is, this is the opportunity that stands in front of you today. Trust in Jesus Christ to save you. You deserve this, this strike. He has taken it on himself. And what he offers you now to those who will repent is great mercy. It's why we sang earlier that, that of his sovereign power and tender care. Oh, what a great God we serve. While it is still called today, repent and trust in Jesus Christ. And to those who have, to those who have found their only hope in him, he shares of his abundance. Yes, he searches, and yes, he strikes, but then he shares. Look at verse 24. And to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even as myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. Leah did a fantastic job, and thank you for doing this, for reading for us from Psalm chapter 2, verses, uh, through all, all Psalm chapter 2 earlier in the service. And we, we pick up uh, in, in verses 7 through 9 this promise that this is who Jesus will be. This is who the Davidic king will be. Starting in verse 7, it says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. He has been, it has been bestowed on him this incredible power. This is who our Savior is. 
the one who rules all. He's been given it by the, by the sovereign king of the universe. And what he promises to do is to share that with us. That we can be co-heirs with him. Later in, in the letter to, to Laodicea, he will promise that we can even share his throne. That we will, we will have this authority with him. How exactly that plays out, that's for him to explain as we go along. And, and for us to see, I think there's some, there's some mystery built in here. But what I think what we need to know at the end of the day is that we have a good and gracious Savior who pulls us in and who calls us friend and who calls us brother. And he shares even his authority with us. This great and matchless authority of the one who is able to shatter the nations with a flick of his wrist. With a tap of his rod, he breaks them apart like they're just pots of clay. This is the power and majesty of our Savior, and he is the morning star. In Revelation chapter 22, he calls himself this morning star. It's the morning star is the, the last star to fade as the sun rises. When everything else has faded away, there's one still remaining, and that's our Savior. That's our Savior. And he says, I give you myself. I will give you that last uh, guiding light. It is me. And so what do we do knowing that this is who Jesus is and this is what is, he has done and this is how it will end for him? Well, what do we do? Well, I think when we looked at Jezebel, we knew that we needed to keep his church. We need to keep Christ's church. Here, I think as we look on Christ, we need to remember to keep Christ's works. We need to keep his works. That's what it says Excuse me, in verse 20, 26, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. The one who conquers is not new. We've seen that in all the other letters. But this is the only letter that has this extra provision. The one who conquers and who keeps my works. Those are the ones who receive this promise. And that's been the theme throughout this letter. Five different times we've seen the, the word works. We've seen their works at the beginning and how their works have improved over time. And we've also seen the works of Jezebel and those who have held to her works. But now we are called to cling and keep the works of Christ. We've set aside all the things of this world and we keep to his good work. Not thinking that this produces in ourselves our own salvation. Ephesians 2 tells us that it's by, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Our salvation is not the product of our works, but our salvation does produce good works. That's why Paul continues in Ephesians 2 verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Works are proof that our faith is not dead. Works are, are proof that God is working in us and through us. 
Works are proof to a watching world that God has transformed us so they will turn and trust in Jesus Christ. Our works are equipped by God's word. They are encouraged and strengthened by the local congregation of saints. They are evidence of God's faithfulness and of his spirit's fruit in our life. And so as we keep his works, we want to increase in his works, grow in our works. Go back to verse, 18, verse 19. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. I hope that's true of you, and I hope that's true of us collectively, that we have grown in grace and grown in the work of our Lord. We've kept to his works. And so think this week, how can you grow in love, in faith, in service, in patient endurance? How can you more faithfully set aside your own desires and serving of yourself and serve those around you to love them well? Maybe it's in a sweet and tender encouragement. Maybe it's in a firm but helpful rebuke. How can you love as you have been loved? How can you increase in your works of faith this week, trusting in Christ and in his sovereign hand? Trusting him as pressure comes at work, as pressure comes in your home, as pressure comes in your private spaces to compromise and to tolerate sin in your own life. Do you have the faith to trust him not to go down those paths? Not to follow the ways of folly, but to follow the ways of wisdom. And you trust in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How can you increase in your service this week. Think carefully now, maybe even jot down in your notes now, who can you serve more faithfully in a, in a selfless, Christ-like manner this week, taking on burdens yourself to relieve them of theirs? How can you do that within our church? What are the areas within our church that you could extend and increase in the ways that you serve not so that others will see you and glorify you, but so that they will see the fruit of God's work in your life and glorify our fathers in heaven. Maybe, maybe it's down the hall in the children's wing. Maybe it's tonight at Life Group. Not only as you, as you bring and contribute, but you consider hosting a new Life Group. You see the work and the service that's needed in that. Maybe it's that we, we need more folks uh, out in the parking lots directing people, more folks uh, tracking down uh, members and bringing them here to be with us and, and, and running sound and, and helping at Second Mile. There are, there are countless ways that you can serve. Maybe even just this week as you pray through the directory, look at that front page, look, look at, the, at the list of our deacons and think, uh, how can I serve alongside them? How can I learn to serve from these servers? Which of them do I need to reach out to this week and ask what are the opportunities? How do I get signed up? How do I serve an increase in my service? How do I, in the hope that I have in Christ, patiently endure all things? Because I've set my eyes on Christ and I have rested in his work. I think the final thing that we want to do as we look on Christ 
is that we want to rest in his work. Look at what it says here. Only hold fast to what, to what you have until I come. Only hold fast. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have. For the rest, those who haven't followed Jezebel, for the rest, the call is to rest in him. His, his commands are not burdensome. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. He's not, he's not calling you in your own strength to, to, to a torturous way to follow him. He has called you in his strength to a peaceful way to follow him. I pray that that would mark us this week. That we wouldn't strive alongside those who seek to build their own kingdoms through evil and coercion and who think they know the deep things. Instead, we would align ourselves with the one who wrote the deep things. And then we would walk in his works faithfully, increasing in them to the glory of God the Father. May he who has an ear hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we turn and we trust in you. You are our only hope. You are the great king. You are the sovereign and good savior. Lord, you see even to the deepest parts of us. And God, we confess that what you will find there is deeper and darker than we ever want to admit. But you are gracious and good. And we thank you that you call us to repent. You allow us to repent. You enable us to repent. And that you share with those who do repent the glorious, matchless goodness of your very self. We pray that we would set our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith, and we would not stray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing this next song in response to that good and gracious Savior.